In the future, when you experience all these blessings and curses I have listed for you, and when you are living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart all these instructions. If at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord God will restore your fortunes. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from the nations where he scattered you. Even though you are banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will possess that land again. Then he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and soul and so you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate and persecute you. Then you will again obey the Lord and keep all his commands that I am giving you today. The Lord your God will make you successful in everything you do. He will give you many children, numerous livestock, and he will cause your fields to produce abundant harvests. For the Lord will again delight in being good to you as he was to your ancestors. The Lord your God will delight in you if you obey his voice and keep the commands and decrees written in the book of instruction. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rush. That was from Deuteronomy, by the way, chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. I would encourage you to maybe go over and, and read that again, and because uh, there's a lot in that passage of Scripture. Many years ago, many, many, many years ago, when I was in seminary, we were taught different philosophies of preaching. Hermeneutics is the word they use. And there are a couple different theories out there. I want you to be aware of it because as we're looking for a new pastor, this is one of the things we need to keep in our mind. One theory is, is that the pastor on Sunday morning comes and he feeds the flock. Okay? He feeds them. And then they go home and starve for six days until they come back to church on Sunday again, and then they get fed again. That's not my philosophy of pastoring. The other philosophy, the one that I like, is that the pastor teaches the people how to feed themselves. So seven days a week, you can be fed. You're familiar, I'm sure, with the old saying, You know, give a man a fish today and he eats today. Teach him how to fish and he'll buy a $20,000 bass boat. Uh, Or something to that effect. Okay. Uh, Price has gone up. Uh, 
I like the revised version of that saying because if I can excite you enough about studying the Bible and give you the tools and equip you and excite you so that you will want to put in the energy and the expense and the effort to go feed yourself, then I think that is a successful pastor. And so I want this morning, well, every Sunday, while I'm with you, these few short months, to excite you, to, to get you the tools that you can use to go in the word of God and, and to understand what it has to say. Today we're looking at part one of a two-part sermon on the king and the kingdom. And today we want to look at the kingdom. Now many years ago, again, when I was an assistant pastor in Altoona, Pennsylvania, there was this young man who used to come and sing at our church from time to time. He had a very unique style of singing. He would start off talking and, and then it would just transition right into singing. His name was Doug Oldham. Some of you folks might remember Doug Oldham. One of the songs that he sang, written by Gloria Gaither, and it was called The King is Coming. Anybody remember the song, The King is Coming? Yeah. Um, I was just a young man fresh out of Bible college. And when I thought of the king coming, the, the, what we would call today the second coming of Christ, my thoughts were that of a terrible battle, uh, a trampling out of the grapes of wrath, as the Battle Hymn of the Republic puts it. You know, for me, the, the whole thought of the second coming was that of blood and guts and violence and fear and horror beyond description, a time of judgment, a time of sorrow. But as I heard Doug Oldham sing, I saw it from a different perspective. I, I, I saw it from a Jewish perspective. What would a Jewish individual living at the time of Christ be thinking of if they could have heard that song 2,000 years ago? I heard it from the view of, a, of the long-suffering Jewish people longing for their promised king, longing for the, the promises of God to be fulfilled. For, for, some, for some of those, those promises were over 2,000 years old. I want you to listen to just a clip of that song. Maybe you can kind of get a feel of, of that thinking. So you got it? Stands 
the Jews thought, oh, there's got these promises of God for a king and, and he's coming. And, and that's what I want to look at today. I want, I want to look at the promises that were given to the nation Israel about what would happen when the king came. And all of this is contingent upon one very important biblical truth. And that is God keeps his promises. Okay? We can stand on the promises. I like that old hymn too, standing on the promises of God. God is the God of promises. Different people have gone through the whole Bible. People had a lot more time than I had and have added up all the promises of God in the Bible. Care to guess how many promises they came up with? Ballpark? 300? 600? How many are afraid to say anything? Uh, Somewhere between 7,000 and 8,000 promises in the Bible. Wow. That's a lot. That's more than I thought. And the greatest thing about those promises is this. God will keep every single one of them. If he fails on one promise, he's not God. He has to keep the promises. Now, the word promise, I I looked it up in my thesaurus to see uh, what other words were or synonymous with it, and it came up with things like an agreement, a contract, a treaty, a bond, or a pact. God has made these agreements. He's made these contracts with people, and if you want the biblical word for it, the biblical word would be the word covenant. God has made certain covenants. And God has established several of these covenants, these promises, with the nation Israel. And I want us to just quickly look at some of these promises this morning. The first one I want to look at is what is called the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Here's a promise, a covenant that was made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord hath said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All of the families on earth will be blessed through you. Okay? Now, there are several things that are in this promise to Abraham and to his physical descendants. One is a land. God promised them a land. God has to keep that promise. Okay? God promised that they would become a great nation. God promised them prosperity. And God promised that they would that they would be a blessing for them and there would be a blessing for others through them. That that word through is an important word there. Okay? Through Israel, 
all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. The second one is the what's called the Palestinian covenant. And the Palestinian covenant is what Rush read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'm not going to read that again. But it, it's, this is later on. And God has said, you know, I'm going to bring Israel back to that land that was promised to Abraham. And, and Israel will love God. And Israel will serve him willingly. Israel will prosper. And, and then God reminded them of the promises that he had made earlier to Abraham. So some of this is a reiteration of the promise given to Abraham, and some of this is some, some new material. The, the next covenant is what's called the Davidic covenant, and this is the covenant given to King David, the promises given to him. This is found over in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 13 says, And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. Now again, he repeats some of the Abrahamic covenant. He repeats some of the Palestinian covenant, and then he adds something new. And that is that a king from David's line would rule forever. That king then will give the nation rest from all their enemies. Now, these are literal promises given to a literal nation of Israel that will be literally fulfilled someday. I hope you caught the repetition of the word literally. Okay, remember back our second sermon, we talked about interpreting scripture. We talked about the normal interpretation, which is quite often the literal interpretation. Now, I, I want to stress that because some people say this is not going to happen. Okay? Some people, let me give you an example. How many of you have heard of British Israelism? Anybody? British Israel? Okay, a few of you. Okay, British Israelism. Something the British invented, obviously. Okay? And basically it says this. It says that the British Isles and by extension, the United States of America, are now the recipients of Israel's promises. Okay? That God's not going to literally keep these promises with the nation Israel, but rather they have now been transferred over to the English-speaking people. Okay, it's a long story. I don't have time to go into it this morning, but you might, by the tone of my voice, Pick up, I think that's stupid. Okay. 
There's another group of people that says God will not keep his promises to Israel, but he has transferred them to Christians. Okay? We are now the recipients of all the promises that were given to the nation Israel. Now, James Michener, I don't know if you're familiar with James Michener or not. Um, he's not a Christian. And in fact, some of his writings, he likes to poke fun at Christians. Um, if you've read his book, Hawaii, uh, you know, he talks about the fact that, uh, you know, when, um, when Labor Day came, all the uh, British missionaries in Hawaii had to uh, put on their woolen suits and dresses and things, even though they were in Hawaii and the temperature hadn't changed or anything because that's what, you know, Christians did. They had to change what they wore according to this. Yeah, it's kind of quite an interesting writer. But by far probably my favorite book that he wrote is a book called The Covenant. Uh, if you've ever get a chance, pick it up. Uh, don't buy full price. It's not worth that much. But uh, you know, get it at a used bookstore or something. And in the, the book, The Covenant, deals with South Africa. And it deals with the Dutch settling in South Africa. Now, the Dutch believed in a particular theology that said that we as Christians have inherited all the promises and the commands that God gave Israel. So that's where he's, he's coming from. That's where they're coming from. So they, Dutch believed they were spiritual Israel. And they believed that's what we call South Africa today was spiritual Canaan. And if you go back into the Old Testament and you read what God told the Israelites to do to the Canaanites, the Dutch believed they could do that to the, to the African nationals. The African natives were the spiritual Canaanites. And in the Old Testament, God told Israel to drive out the Canaanites. So what did the Dutch believe God had commanded them to do? Drive out the African natives. Their policies came directly from their theology. Okay. And their theology was that Christianity has inherited all the promises and the commands from God. Now, once you remove a literal interpretation of Scripture from the equation, you open yourself up to this type of thing. I believe, as I have said in previous sermon, that God wants us to take the Bible at face value. What it says, when we look at Who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? Under what circumstances are they speaking? And get it in its context. Well, with that little warning aside, okay, I want us to look at what Israel was expecting from their Messiah. What were they expecting from their king? What were they expecting to happen when Jesus came to earth on the first you know, uh, nativity and, and with this week and next week, what, what's the disconnect? Because what Jesus did and said was not what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do and, and say. 
So I want to read a bunch of scripture to you. And I'm going to do something um, probably that pastors should probably do more often. And that is I'm going to read scripture and let the scripture speak for itself. Okay. <laughs> I'll add just a couple little comments after uh, the scripture passage. But I, here, here's what I want you to do. I want you to transplant yourself 4, 000, or 2,000 years ago into a Jewish person's mind who was fluent in their scriptures, who knew the promises of God, and what were they thinking would happen when the Messiah came? Can you do that? Okay, you, you need to just remove everything after Malachi from your mind for a second, okay, and just think what was going through their mind. So qualities of Israel's kingdom. Here we go. Number one, goodbye violence, hello peace. Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. If it helps you to close your eyes to visualize this, go ahead and do that, but please don't go to sleep. Uh, Isaiah 25, beginning verse 6. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. Notice, no, no more cloud of doom, no more shadow of death. A banquet hall full of good things to eat and drink. Number two, goodbye reproach. Hello rejoicing in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 18 and 19. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. This is what they're looking for. This is what they're thinking. This is what the Messiah is going to bring. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will dispense the armies of your enemies. And the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. At last your troubles will be over and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. 
he will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Notice it talks about there being joy in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem today, I've never been, but thanks to YouTube, I can watch some videos. But if you go where the temple once was, there's now the Dome of the Rock. And you have to go through checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint where you're searched for, for weapons and bombs and everything before you're even allowed to set foot on the square there. And there's not a smiling face to be seen. One of the few places left in Jerusalem that was there when Jesus was on earth is called the Wailing Wall. It's not a place of rejoicing. It's a place of wailing and grief. Christians I know who have gone to Jerusalem have said this, they saw very few smiling faces in Jerusalem. No rejoicing. But that's what was promised Israel. Next one. Goodbye sickness, hello health. Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forward in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. Think about that. No more hearing aids. No more medication. No more senior citizen discounts either. No deformities. No infant deaths. No viruses. No immunizations. Okay. Sickness is gone in the kingdom. The next one. Goodbye injustice. Hello equality. Isaiah chapter 65 verses 21 through 23, says, In those days people will live in the houses they built and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain. And their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For they are people blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. In the kingdom, children will not be born into a world that is corrupt or exploits them. There will be a perfect economic system in which the needs of all are abundantly provided for. And then Isaiah 62, 8 through 9. The Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength, I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and new wine. You raise the grain and you will eat it, praising the Lord. Within the courtyards of the temple, you yourselves will drink the wine that you have pressed. There's no more injustice because 
There's no more corrupt government. It's one of the reasons. Isaiah 33:22. This one you ought to really note, okay? I really like this one. For the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. Now, if you're familiar with the government of our country, you know there are three branches, right? There's the executive branch, there's the legislative branch, and there's the judicial branch. Notice what it says in Isaiah 33, 22. The Lord is our judge, which is that. That's your judicial branch, okay? The Lord is the lawgiver. What's that? The legislative branch. The Lord is the king. What is that? That's the executive branch. The Lord rules as a benevolent dictator, if you would. Okay? Although the biblical word is this, a theocracy. A theocracy where God rules completely. No more communism, no more socialism, no more democracy, a perfect and holy theocracy. Did you put yourself in the mind of a Jew living at the time of Christ? Did, did you, do you understand their expectations? Do you understand what they believed was going to happen when the Messiah came? Now, now time really prohibits me from going into more detail. But God's promises to Israel include the fullness of joy, comfort, healing, protection, prosperity. And most important, I've left for last, God will be glorified. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. Isaiah 35, 1 through 2. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The desert will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plains of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory the splendor of our God. During this time, Israel, God, Israel's God, will be held up for everyone to see, all the nations of the earth to see that he is the one and only God. He will be held up as the one who gives promises and keeps his promises. Next week, I think it is, we're, we're going to be looking at the king. We're going to go to the gospels because in the gospels, Jesus reveals himself as this individual that is going to bring in the kingdom. Now, there are people today, Christians today, who believe that we are living in the kingdom right now. Okay? I look at this scripture, and I don't see anything 
that is, compares at all to anything that we have right now. The kingdom is still coming. God has promised it. It's literal. It's going to happen. We have to put on that Jewish mindset and understanding. You know, what were the children of Israel looking for in their Messiah? What they were looking for is someone who would literally fulfill the literal promises of God made to them. And they would settle for nothing less. And that's where we have the problem. Next week, we're going to look at the king and what went wrong. What went wrong? Not from God's perspective, from man's perspective. What went wrong? Let's pray. Lord, I know I'm sounding like a theology professor up here. But Lord, you have made some wonderful promises for us and some wonderful promises for Israel. And and sometimes we we want to kind of just mix the two up, but Father, we can't. We, We need to see your word on the eyes of those who your promises were given so we understand them. Thank you for your word. And Father, thank you that you will keep every promise made to us, every single one of them. And that, Father, you, in the end, are going to be glorified. When every one of man's schemes has failed, and they must fail, Father, you will be glorified because you keep your promises. Thank you for your word. Help us to get excited about getting in it and learning and understanding. Pray in Christ's name, amen.